I don't know if you know, but this podcast is going places. It's traveling. And it's traveling in a way that you can't do on foot, or by car, or by plane. It's traveling through the internet. Today we travel to Gothenburg, Sweden. To a place that I don't think many of you probably have thought of. And I didn't think of either until I had a great conversation with Alexandra Middleton. You see, I was drawn to her work in medical anthropology, and in particular, her work in prosthetics, which we had a very great conversation about. And the work where all these prosthetic projects are going on is called the Biomechanics and Rehabilitation Laboratory at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden. I really didn't have a lot of knowledge going in about prosthetics and medical anthropology and really just dreaming about a future where it was better for the people who don't have limbs and are looking for something that will really help them function better in their lives. I think I learned quite a bit about that and I think the information is really going to make you think and hopefully that's what this podcast does all the time. So. I'm happy to introduce to you Alexandra Middleton. Yeah, thank you, Darian. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to it, too. So you're in Sweden, correct? Is that where? where, Yeah. How did you get there? Are you from the United States uh, normally or no? Yeah, yeah. I, I come from the U.S. Actually, funny enough, my um, my mother's side of the family did come from Sweden, but this is several generations back, so that's not really part of my story. Um, but yeah, I'm from I'm from the West Coast originally. I was born actually in Pennsylvania, but moved to San Francisco area when I was one. Yeah, and then moved up to uh, Bend, Oregon. And you're in the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, I'm in uh, Washington State and Blaine, furthest north you can go in Washington. Uh-huh. So. Okay. Yeah, so I moved to Bend when I was uh, 12. So I sort of think about those two places as my home. And then life took me many places before this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I headed out east to Duke University for, for my bachelor's degree. And then um, by way of Duke, ended up <clears throat> in Boulder, Colorado for, for a year of work and then back to Portland. And then ultimately to Princeton um, for my PhD. And so that sort of leads us to Sweden eventually. (laughs) Um, It's where I decided to do my research for my dissertation. And so I've been actually coming here um, on and off for the last four or five years now, and then have been living here uh, most recently for uh, two years. Yeah. And so what are you doing in Sweden? What's the uh, aim of like your research or work that you're doing? Yeah, so I'm a I'm an anthropologist, a medical anthropologist, and so my work is a uh, ethnography of emerging prosthetic technologies here in Sweden. Mm-hmm. So where I am in Gothenburg, Sweden, is actually an epicenter for some really advanced technologies uh, surrounding kind of theories and ideas, but also um, devices for better connecting humans with prosthetic limbs. So my work follows kind of the evolution of those devices, but also really follows the social relations that go into their production. And then also, uh, especially the use of them by by the patients who are enrolled in the clinical trials um, that they're focused on. So, What is the, take me down kind of the whole about how prosthetics used to be and where they're at now. Because it seems like, I, I remember growing up and prosthetics are pretty clunky looking. Yeah. And I can't even imagine where technology has taken that currently. Definitely. That's a really important part of the story. So uh, so the prosthetics that you're probably gesturing to and and are most familiar with are um, typically a traditional model. It's like a socket that fits around the amputation site. So either the arm or the leg. 
Um, and these can be really cumbersome for people. They can, um, yeah, no, so so these, um, these traditional prosthetics, um, so actually the, the statistics, you'll, you'll hear different ones depending on the source, but around 30 to 45% of people actually end up abandoning these socket prosthetics oh. uh, just because they're really cumbersome. A lot of times people experience that their limb is actually moving independent of the prosthetic itself. Um, and also people can have just a lot of like pain in this region, both through the stump itself, but then also through phantom limb pain, which is something we can, I hope we get into later. Yes, of course. But, but to continue. So, so this group is, um, they, they work on connecting the prosthetic with the body in, in a number of levels. So the first is the way that the, the prosthetic attaches to the body, which is through what's called osseointegration. So um, it's actually instead of using a socket to fit the prosthetic around the body, it's actually integrating the, uh, the prosthetic with the bone. So what it is, is it's an implanted titanium rod that's um, implanted into the humerus or into the radius or ulna, mm -hmm. your upper limb or the femur or tibia or fibia. And, um, and so the whole technology for this, it's really funny, actually originated here in Gothenburg uh, through dental implant surgery. So back in the 50s or 60s, um, a man named Perimar Bronemark discovered that um, that bone, bone and, and teeth cells could grow onto titanium. And about 30 years, 30 years later, his son, Richard Bronemark, said, well, if we can do this with teeth, why not with human bone? So that led to the um, to the technology of osseointegration that allows um, for bone cells to grow around these titanium rods, and then the prosthetic is kind of screwed onto the the bone directly. So this has been around for probably the last over the last twenty years. There's hundreds of patients throughout the world using osseointegrated prosthetics, um, but then the the technologies that I study take it several steps further. Um, another another emergent idea is using recording electrical impulses from the body to um, to steer the prosthetic. So so up until the point of this lab, m much of that work had been using surface electrodes. So sort of electrodes maybe on the inside of the socket that would sit on the biceps and the triceps, and people eventually learn to you know contract their bicep if they want to open their hand or contract their tricep if they want tricep if they want to close the hand. Um, but the problem with these sorts of surface electrodes is that people were experiencing that they were very susceptible to interference from the environment. So like if you would walk by your stove or your oven and it's like a conduction stove, your hand <laughs> might open, you might, you might lose what you're holding. So it's sort of it was nice in huh. concept, but that's the thing with these technologies is sometimes moving out into the world, you see that they maybe don't function in the way you would imagine. So this group uh, decided to to take that technology inside the body. And so through several surgical techniques, they can actually implant electrodes on the surface of um, re-innervated muscles, and they can harness those signals to essentially steer the prosthetic itself through through what they call um, myoelectric pattern recognition. So that's reading the, the signals, the electrical impulses that are coming from intention through to the nerves, through to the muscles, and then they can eventually learn to code those patterns into certain movements. So it's a very long-winded way of walking us <laughs> to where we are. Day. And I will also say that when I speak about this, I know it sounds very science fiction, right? It sounds like we have created cyborgs that we, you know, are fully integrating our, our brains with the machine. And, and this is all um, very impressive, but also very experimental and emergent science, too. So there's only a handful of people in the world who have this device. It's still in the clinical trials phase. They're still, you know, definitely ironing out bugs. And just it's really an exciting site because it is so uh, emerging and evolving. But there's also, you know, a lot that is still unfolding. Well, tell me a little bit about the um, you mentioned the phantom limb pain. 
yeah. and that whole deal there. I, you know, I've, I've heard about that forever growing up, and I think a lot mm -hmm. of people have, but I don't know if people really understand it completely. So I think it'd be good to explain that. Definitely. So we, pain, I'll start by saying that pain in general is one of the most flummoxing experiences that the body has. You know, we have, pain is, is one of the experiences that we have that is so intensely subjective that we have very, you know, ill-equipped tools to measure it or to understand it because, you know, my experience of pain and your experience of pain is encoded and, and um, you know, conditioned by our life experiences and our, 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 the ways that we interpret it. And so uh, the study of pain is a really complicated um, challenge to medicine. And so, so they've, um, the current sort of understanding of pain is that there's nociceptive pain, which occurs by damage to tissues in the body, but then there's also neuropathic pain, which is pain that is from perhaps an unidentifiable physical cause, but is rather involved with the nervous system. And so that's what um, phantom limb pain is understood as being. So if we take the kind of behemoth of understanding pain and then apply it to the phantom limb, it's a, it's a really uh, fascinating but challenging phenomenon where um, people who have lost a limb uh, still very much experience that limb as existing in space. And so some of the people I work with, um, they viscerally feel like the limb is still attached, sometimes in the position where they lost it. Mm. So for instance, I feel like my my hand is is kind of bent at the elbow and a tight fist at the shoulder and I'm walking through a door and I feel like the passageway might interact with my, um, with where I feel my phantom limb to be, I will move my body to avoid that. So it's a very like visceral sense that the limb is still there. And someone can have phantom limb sensations, which are perhaps not painful for one person, but perhaps painful for another. But I would say that, um, that phantom limb pain is probably the, I would definitely say it's the biggest challenge of amputation from people who I have worked with. It's not adapting to a new body in the world, adapting to use a prosthetic. It's this really challenging experience of just kind of this relentless pain. So a lot of people are trying to distract themselves. They uh, are awake at night with this pain and it really impacts their daily life. Um, so the group that I work with is really on the frontiers of addressing uh, how to treat phantom limb pain also. So um, I not only follow the prosthetics technologies, but also the therapeutics that they're engineering to uh, treat phantom limb pain. And I don't know if you're familiar, but the sort of um, the sort of gold standard up until this point is the mirror therapy treatment. No. Uh, no. So. So um, Ramachandran, who's a neuroscientist out of, um, I think he's in San Diego now, developed this treatment where an individual would sit in front of a mirror that's sort of placed at the meridian of their body, and they would use the intact limb to sort of do some movements that are then visually reflected onto the other side. So it looks like you have your left hand if you've lost it as um. you're moving so the idea behind that therapy is that by seeing that you have the limb restored, you're able to sort of retrain the brain to re-recognize the body and to um, hopefully calm down the pain networks in the brain. Uh, so that was the reigning theory for many years. And then neuroscience has really evolved, especially in the last decade, to challenge that theory. And, um, and the head scientist of the group that I work with, his name is Dr. Max Ortiz Catalan. He's, um, he has a new theory about this, which is called phantom motor execution as a therapy for, um, for phantom limb pain. So whereas in the, mo in the mirror therapy, people are imagining that they are moving their phantom limb, this therapy actually implores them to use the muscles around their lost limb. And the way that they do that is actually using some of the same um, machine learning coding that they use for the prosthetic devices, but for a um, for a virtual reality treatment. So what they do is that they, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. So they place electrodes on the surface of the limb and, um, and then they uh, 
tell the patient to actually engage the muscles to move a virtual limb. And so the limb is moving in the ways that the, that the patterns are trained to recognize. So it's really, um, you know, the, the theory of, uh, behind this specific therapeutic approach is that it requires uh, engaging the sensory motor cortex of the brain, not just the visual system, in order to um, calm down the pain networks and retrain the brain to know the post-amputation body. So, so that's also an um, a ongoing project here. Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, it sounds, uh, you know, it's just, I think it's an area that a lot of people just don't have a great understanding of, you know, as maybe not necessarily part of everyday life that people are thinking about unless maybe they, you know, have had an amputation and they're looking into it. But, uh, you know, I wonder about what, where, where is this heading? Like, what is kind of the sci-fi element? Like, how far, how sophisticated will this technology become? Is it kind of the... Um, like machine human um, mm. integration, you know what I mean? Like almost like when you think about it from movies like cyborgs and stuff like that, and you think you see more movies where if you think about a future where machines and people become one in a sense. I mean, it sounds far fetched, but on some level, it, it doesn't in a way, you know. Sure. No, I mean, you're really, what you're gesturing to is, is these sort of imaginaries that we have, right, about that, that we're fed by, by science fiction and, and um, films. And, but it's also, you know, now we, we have these technologies that are emerging and it, it kind of implores us to wonder, right, about these relationships. Yes. They're evolving and, and where things will go. And I, I know that this this group and this lab has to often field, you know, some of the anxieties of people who are wondering, you know, will machines take over my body and whatnot. And I, I would really, what I would say to that is that those aren't the concerns of this group. I mean, the concerns are much more modest and the concerns are about restoring functionality to people who have lost that capacity. So, so my ability to like postulate what this might be would only be you know engaging in those imaginaries and i think it's more productive to think about like how um what are the limits also of of integrating with machines and um and also sort of i think um tending to to the difficulties and the challenges that it takes to to integrate with a machine still you know it takes years for for the body to learn these patterns for for an identity to form surrounding an individual with their prosthetic limb um so so i find those questions a little more provoking um but of course like there's no limit to what we could imagine right yeah i think that you know Again, if you're not deeply invested into the field and you're doing very functional everyday things, you're getting people to merge with their prosthetic in a very functional everyday learn how to live with that. You know, people think about it in a very sci-fi aspect in the movies, like, hey, they're going to put on this prosthetic, they're going to screw it on and they're good, you know, and they're going to go out and they're going to like take something and crush a brick with it or something, you know, like I think our imagination in many ways is wonderful. It's the human imagination is incredible for where we, where we take things. But I think on a regular basis, it sounds like it's just, it's very much a long-term process. And it's one that you, it's, it's very, sounds tedious. And what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, that's a good word for it. And I will say that imagination is part of science as well, right? I mean, we have to create and, and envision a future that we're work, working towards, and we have to communicate that to other funding bodies who are going to, you know, be on board with that. So imagination is, is, a, is a part of science, but yes, on the other side, I mean, I, so as an anthropologist, I spend uh, a lot of my time in the lab with the engineers and scientists, and you, you see, you know, day in and day out, you know, a lot of hours upon hours, late nights, you know, going into this coding and refining and fixing bugs, and and that's just on the side of the engineers. But if you go into the home, like I do with um, with patients, you see, you know, 
tons of things emerge in situ too that people have to deal with. So I think um, it's important that we know that part of the story too and um, that it's not this effortless fusion but rather that it's a relationship between the individual and their device that's constantly being negotiated and enacted and you know the device becomes not only a part of you know a part or not a part of their body but also a part of their social life their family so so a lot of those elements in that you know process of adaptation is a focus of my work too so in terms of prosthetics, um, is it, you know, I think people think of like, you know, arms, maybe legs. Are there other um, body parts or prosthetics that are, are being developed that may be a little different than what people are used to seeing? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, so it's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but uh, wheelhouse. But we talk also, you know, a lot that you talk about prosthetics, but then you also talk about transplantation too mm-hmm. on the same terrain because sometimes patients have to choose whether they want to have a prosthetic or want to have a hand transplantation. So to that note, I have heard of face transplantations. Um, I've also heard of, um, gosh, I need to, I need to confirm this. So yeah, no face transplantations and um, you know, I, I don't know. Well, if you talk about prosthetics, maybe in a looser sense, you know, we have. Uh, bone conducting hearing aids. We have, mm-hmm. you know, some of these other tools. Um, there's exoskeletons that are being engineered for people who are paraplegic or quadriplegic. Um, I actually started out my my doctoral work looking at a project out of Brazil, uh, the Walk Again project. Um, exoskeleton, like it's basically. I mean, I've, I've kind of heard of that. Explain a little bit more on that. Yeah, yeah it's like a suit. Uh, almost like okay. a structure that the individual wears, um, and it's often body powered or or neurologically powered in in some of similar ways, um, and uh, yeah, so so that's another technology that one could call a prosthetic, uh, yeah. So what is the um, concept of uh, I I read on your LinkedIn whole thing transhumanism and discussing that I. I feel like I'm not quite sure what that is, but I think it's it, it sounds interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the way I understand it is transhumanism is sort of um, and and the reason I put it on my profile is I like to play with these concepts. So in a, in a description of a profile, sometimes it's hard to to um, to fully explain your relationship with each of those terms, right? But my relationship to the term of of transhumanism is is a bit of a playful one as well as a critical one. Um, so transhumanism is, is essentially what are the limits of the human and how do we transcend them? Where are they going? Where do I stop and you begin? Or where do I stop and the machine begins? And so we already see ourselves talking about these things, you know, as we all walk around with these phones as extensions of ourselves or we're all, you know, more often than not dialed into another world through our headphones and and so w- what are the ways that this human body and the human self is extended and how do we start to navigate you know definitions of the self and definitions of the body in this new you know age where where we are extended in all of these ways uh, at the same time i would like to imagine that as an anthropologist i'm also a humanist and so sort of backing us down from some of those imaginaries and thinking really about, you know, what kind of relationships and social um, social patterns go into the making of these sort of extensions and what does it tell us about a relationship of an individual with themselves, with their own bodies. Um, so, I, so my interest in transhumanism is sometimes unworking the the sort of science fiction behind these questions to really look at well actually why don't what it would happen if we were to focus on the humanist side of these sort of technological interactions um, and I find those really fascinating yeah I think it's fascinating too I think you know you mentioned you know like the smartphone and I was telling a friend of mine not too long ago I was like and we were talking about kind of this this whole thing and I said you know, we already have basically a digital prosthetic. It's called your phone. And mm. like, it's basically connected to you. And I started thinking, I wonder where, how that 
form will change over time. And I know like you sound like you're very grounded in like, hey, this is the human side of it. This is the research. And I think sometimes with maybe pop culture or just, you know, the general population thinks, how will this change over time? Will the form of the phone change? Will it become part of your body? Will where do those things begin and end? So I think both sides of those equations are really interesting to me yeah. as we continue to explore, because I, I think that I think there's the real work that's going on, like what you're doing and mm -hmm. scientists are doing. And then there's the stuff, people just wild stuff out there <laughs> that's going yeah. on, you know? <laughs> right. And that's why I think it's really important that scientists communicate their work or have outlets to communicate their work in ways that really um, represent accurately um, what is going on because often there is, you know, a, a gap between the scientific communications of findings and then how those are represented in popular media. And in that gap, a lot happens. So a lot of transformations happen because the imaginary takes over and things, you know, well, you know, and that's also some of the limits of language as well. I think in my work, I try to incorporate uh, photography and film and some visual methods, because I think when I sit here and talk and tell you about these devices, what you picture in your mind is probably very different from um, from what uh, what it actually is in reality. So I think that the visual can actually do some productive, deconstructive work on those imaginaries. Um, and I'm realizing as I'm talking that I forgot to say uh, that a big facet of emerging prosthetics research and a lot of what my work is concerned with is uh, sensory feedback. So trying to um, get environmental stimulus into the body through the prosthetic to approximate a sense of touch. So that's what the group that I'm working with is doing. And uh, so, so the question of touch is definitely an arena where a lot of these questions about humanity come up because, you know, touch is such a such an organic biological sense that to lose that, you know, and then to try to recreate it is um, is quite a feat. And so I see a lot of these dialogues about imaginaries, you know, coming up surrounding. Can we get somebody to touch again? Can we get natural touch again? Can we get the feeling of a child's hand in the prosthetic hand once again? And, you know, up until this point, um, with the group that I have worked with has found is, well, no, it's not the same kind of touch. It's a it's a sort of more electric sensation. And, and maybe we're asking the wrong questions. Maybe the question at this point isn't, you know, to hold a hand again, but to be able to manipulate an object without looking at it, you know? Like what, what sort of scale are we imagining is possible right now? And also what's most important to people at this point? So what you're saying, so basically with somebody with a prosthetic, when they touch something, they don't feel the sensation uh when they're touching anything but you're trying to work on getting them to feel something close to like feeling yeah. somebody's hand um i would say trying to get more close to feeling an object an feeling object. that okay. in the hand so i see uh, so so there's the the sensor hand that they work with right now has a sensor in the thumb so if i were to take this cup i would feel that i am gripping something in my hand now, touch is such a complicated sensation, right? We feel texture, we feel temperature, we feel, you know, um, all of the elements of an object, you know, that is so in inherently complex um, that that's perhaps not the level that we're talking about right now, um, but just the detection of an object so that it helps with somebody's proprioception to know, you know, what uh, proprioception is the sense of body and space. Um, to know, I'm sure you know this from your mm -hmm. work, but just for the audience. Um, yeah, so so that's the kind of touch we're talking about right now. What do you think about concepts of like Neuralink, things like that? Well, the Elon Musk and kind of this almost brain uh, network interlinking with essentially information, internet, all that stuff. I mean, that may be not your area so much, I'm not sure, but I think you must get some of these types of questions or people thinking about it because of the work you're doing. I mean, it, it seems to meld into that area on some level. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think whenever we start talking about the brain, we get really, I mean, the brain is such a frontier 
And there are so many different directions you could go with it. I mean, the prefix neuro has been added to so many disciplines. Now we have neurolinguistics, we have neurophysiology, we have neuro anthropology, we have, you know, Neuralink. <laughs> so, so it's, I think that, you know, we imagine that they, they are all, you know, the same thing because they're united by this prefix of neuro. I think what's, what's going on in those spheres, I don't feel quite educated enough to, or familiar enough to comment on what I feel like they, they tell us or show us is just that we are infatuated with the brain and what it can do and what and what we can do with it and um i think that it's you know really interesting to ask why are we so infatuated with the brain what does that tell us about our priority as a culture how we divide up the body how we experience you know um experience and and give certain organs certain meanings you know as an anthropologist this is sort of my questions and and now you see the emergence of of gut biome science being inter linked with neuroscience and and so um i just think it's interesting to notice how this infatuation of the brain is even you know now permeating marketing permeating advertising permeating you know capitalism and so so it's this real hot word but i'm not sure if we're really speaking about the same thing here yeah no i i definitely feel um what you're saying with that i think it's um I get all these things. I'm like any regular consumer of things. I think I'm like, man, this is just wild stuff to me. You know, I'm just like, even just like, you know, we're talking about the tedious stuff. I think that's very interesting to me. I think you said scientists getting their, their accurate information out. How does that happen? Because I think a lot of people aren't getting the accurate information. They're not being told that this is a very tedious long-term no. thing. They're being told by pop culture people on documentaries, like the singularity is coming. Oh my yeah. gosh, 2025, 2030, this is going to happen. It's going to be, you, you're going to, you know, merge with the machine. You're not going to be human. Like, but people tell you that, but how do, I don't hear scientists saying that so much that I like the reality of it all the way. No, uh, again, I just think there's a real gap in, in commun science communication. And you, of course there's folks working in science journalism who have backgrounds in, in science and and i think what's really important is that you have somebody who's at the podium who deeply understands and is intimately involved and understands with what goes into the production of that knowledge because i would imagine that anybody who you know toils day in day out around these would not deliver a sort of sensationalist message unless they're trying to sell something Trying to, you know? So I think that um, I mean that's what that's what I, that's why I think you know anthropology of, of science is important because you know what we do is we sort of so a lot of times as as the public as consumers we're we're encountering a scientific finding or a scientific object downstream right after it's been made we don't know the story of what went into making that object or how many false starts or how many you know u-turns or abandoned plans went into the making of this one device but journalism and especially anthropological attention to the evolution of something can can tell that story in a way that is very productive and important, I think. So it's sort of telling a history of the present, of how did we get here, what went into it, what sorts of decisions were made along the way um, it, that went into the production. So it's sort of like taking the veil off or like lifting back the curtains. And I think that I would hope that we have the attention span for that kind of journalism. <laughs> of communication i don't know you know with 40 characters and with like um instagram captions now like if we even have shot ourselves in the foot by now and i you know but i would like to believe that that sort of communication is possible um if you're looking for a high quality zero thc cbd products palmorganics.com is your place. Go to the show notes and any episode of Dr. D's social network and put in the code Dr. D for 10% off all products. Uh, 
I hope. <laughs> I hope so too. I mean, I just, even just from talking to you, I'm, I'm learning. It's one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you because I'm like, listen, I hear about this on a very science fiction Netflix documentary <laughs> aspect of it. You know, I don't know people in this community doing this work, but I can imagine what I believe is going on. Mm. So it's kind of a search for me. It's like, okay, what is this really like? Like I started thinking like, okay, so how does 3D printing go into prosthetics? Mm. Is that something you're working with? Or is that, that seems to me would be relevant on some level, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and there's a really cool movement of sort of a maker's movement behind prosthetics where people are even printing their own prosthetics or, um, you know, and also comes up the question, is the hand really the most optimal thing to have attached to you, you know? Like, um, for instance, some of the patients who I work with, they prefer this um, device called a grafer, which is like a pincher or a ply. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the people who I work with, they work a lot with their hands and they're, you know, electricians or engineers. And they say, well, with this prosthetic hand, like these fingers get in the way, it would be a lot easier if I could just pinch something. So I think in that direction, too, it's like um, sometimes you're in this um, in this field, sometimes you're encountering questions of is emulating the, the human the goal or is, is it a different, you know, kind of. Um, object or a different kind of tool that could be attached to the body that could function in a different way. Uh, so I see that a bit with people in the maker movement who are 3D printing their own prosthetics. In in this domain that I work in, um, no, no 3D printing really unless it's a very small part or something. Mm -hmm. But it's really, I should emphasize that the group that I work with works on the connector, so it's much more on the internal wiring of the body and the actual connector piece and the coating that goes into connecting the body with the prosthetic rather than the actual prosthetic. So the prosthetic that they use is an Autobach, um, which is a German prosthetics maker. It's a, an arm that is on the market already, and so they're coupling their technology and their coating with an already existent system. Now, how do you, now what is the kind of the manufacturing element and the consumer element where I would imagine these things are fairly expensive? Yes. And, right, so I, I imagine how does somebody, you know, ha get a prosthetic and they can't mm -hmm. afford it? You know, does that maybe like grapple with that question when working yeah. with this? Uh, I am so glad that you raised that because I think it's a really important question and I think we're still many, many, many years away from this. Um, uh, but all of that being said, you know, part of the reason that I chose to uh, to do this research in Sweden as opposed to in the United States is uh, in the United States, a lot of the funding surrounding prosthetic research comes out of um, the military, so out of DARPA. DARPA is one of the biggest funders, if not the, of prosthetic science in the U.S. And so there's a lot of support for veterans, um, but there might not be support for in equal ways for, for other amputees. And, um, you know, we know in our, in our American healthcare system how difficult it is to get insurance and to get coverage for these sorts of devices is out of the question for so many people. So I'm really glad you raised the question of access because it's a concern of my work as well. So, so maybe we're making these incredibly sophisticated devices, but at what cost and, and to whom? Uh, are these going to be available? Sweden is an interesting site because there is a lot of support from the state in both science and research, but also in the medical healthcare system. Um, so, so there's a lot more funding and um, support through the state-provided insurance for people to get access to arms, but even or, or legs and um, prosthetics. But even still, you know, there the cost of these at this point would be pretty prohibitive for most people. And so, again, that's a question that we we need to grapple with, right? How how is it possible to make these high high cost, high tech devices accessible for anyone? And um, I don't know the answer. Yeah, I think it's kind of like, I know it's not the same, but you think about, sometimes I think movies parallel what happens in life and many times. You know, I think of uh, <laughs> a movie, I think, um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, uh, Elysium uh, with Matt Damon. It's pretty interesting. And it's basically <laughs> like, you know, the, it, people who are very wealthy have access to 
all these incredible technologies and curing cancer and, you know, and then people who are poor have access to nothing, essentially. And yeah. I think that's, I think that's a very real issue in our world. You know, we're creating these incredible technologies that are really not accessible to the average person who generally probably really needed more than anybody that are going through these things. So then the prosthetic or whatever it may be becomes only accessible to the wealthy elite for that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a weird, it's a, it's a very complex, really uh, tough issue, in my yeah. opinion. That's like a social moral issue with people, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, it also gestures to the role of, of systems in healthcare as well. I mean, here in Sweden, there's, there is an infrastructure that at least helps people in some way um, with that access. But thinking about, you know, this in the United States, I, I have trouble imagining at least in a widespread way. And, and again, that, that just gets us into so many questions about, you know, the social determinants of access to health and and um, how unequally distributed those are. And so, yeah, that's really acute in this space. Um, when I think about it, one of the um, one of the things that sort of undoes that disparity in my mind is that this uh, phantom limb treatment, by contrast, this therapy is is quite scalable and quite um, distributable. So. Uh, really what it is is just mass producing these small boxes that have the coding system to read the signals from an individual's uh, limb, but the but the electrodes and, and whatnot are comparatively at a much lower cost. So that is a technology that I imagine could be scaled much more easily than these high-tech prosthetics. And again, if we think about the, the way in which pain you know, is, is one of the biggest concerns of amputees throughout the world. Um, that's one where I would imagine it could be more feasible to have more widespread access. It's already being used in um, the clinical trial that I'm following is in seven different countries, but it's also being used in homes in um, Chile and South Africa. And so it's, it's um, growing in ways that the prosthetic technology can't right now. Um, what is the future of prosthetic technology? I mean, where do you, I mean, I'm sure it, as tedious and slow as it is, it, it may be on, maybe beyond your lifetime, but where do you envision it being far down the road? It's hmm. a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> Again, I'm really resistant to these imaginary questions because I really like to root in. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> I could totally tell. I, I want to humor you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think that I when I, when you ask me that question, I'm imagining what I um, see today, maybe 20 years in the future, and what I see would imagine there. I mean, right now we just have hand opening and closing function, but I would imagine that we would have intuitive wrist rotation, maybe finger articulation, which they're already working towards, elbow extension, enclosure. So that might be coming maybe in the next five to 10 years, hopefully. Um, so, so I'm thinking more on the mechanical like movement level. Um, you know, it's interesting and fascinating to see how people choose aesthetically to, um, to you know, decorate their prosthetic or express themselves through their prosthetic. Um, but I think the most important question is sort of, uh, you know, the human, right? Not the prosthetic, but how are how are people who are moving in the world through the world with a different kind of body, you know, how are how are they imagining their life after amputation? Is it is it also maybe it's just as good not to have any prosthetic? I mean, there's a lot of really really productive critiques coming out of the disability studies um, uh, field. Of people who say, you know, who whoever said that the two-armed, two-legged body is the the right body to be mm-hmm. in in the world, and so there's a lot of normative ideas about what the body should or shouldn't be. So I'm also excited. You know, we're seeing a lot of productive movements surrounding gender identity. I, I would really hope that we also start to see more around body identity and and um, just kind of more acceptance surrounding many different types of bodies. You think that was interesting. I was laughing because I could tell, like, now I'm not going to say you struggled with that kind of imaginary thing, but it it seems like uh, 
it's just it's fascinating to me like that you mm-hmm. you're like I, I don't want to look at it that way like you know it's it's interesting yeah. i think because so many people i know don't look at it the way you look at it they're very explosive in their imagination and what they see and i i wouldn't say i'm thrown off by it but i'm mm-hmm. very it's intriguing to me that somebody is like listen i just want to think about it in a very functional way I don't want to be, this isn't the Avengers, you know, this isn't like <laughs> some superhero yeah. movie. And I think that's refreshing, honestly. It made me laugh because I was like, man, most people are willing to go there to like, oh, man, you're going to see crazy stuff. You know, <laughs> it's going to be incredible. <laughs> and I think it's, 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 it's safer, your approach in a sense that let's be pragmatic about this. These mm-hmm. are not, these jumps that you have in science fiction are like hundred, hundreds of year jumps. These, yeah. This is not the reality of these technology. These, this, these are these are everyday working. Like you said, you know the fingers, and you're talking about elbow flexion, extension. Like mo- your sci-fi fans are going to be very disappointed by hearing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, I think also you know you said past my lifetime, and I'm thinking you know past the lifetimes of the people who I work with who are using these prosthetics, and I don't want to skip over that. You know, there's something in me that feels like you know it does an, an injustice to to where these technologies are at and where people are at with them to mm-hmm. to leap okay, well, this is this, but what could it be? You know, always striving for something better. Of course, we're always going to continue to do that. But I, I want to do justice to the people who are living it, you know, now and who are, who are you know, the bodies and lives that this is all based on. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm not a dreamer, although I've thought about myself as one in other capacities. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's, it's definitely uh, very different for, from anybody I would talk to. I mm. think a lot of people are much, they want to engage just in this, this very dreamlike science fiction thing. And I think I'm guilty of that in many ways. You know, it's just, you know, it's pop culture, it's movies, it's things, you know, but like I get all these, I get overloaded with, you're telling me all this stuff, I'm listening and I'm like, Ooh, I have this other thing I have to talk to you about. And it's, it feels explosive to me. Like I start thinking like, now maybe it's relevant or not. What about a future where people are not getting prosthetics just because they lost a limb, but because right. they want to have a prosthetic? Like right. for, you, do, you ever, do you ever think about that? Or is that a thing people say, hey, I don't want this. Yeah. I, I want to have this prosthetic not be, it's kind of like a drug if like, Somebody mm-hmm. was taking steroids, uh, you know, back in the day because of emaciated, you know, uh, prisoners of war to help mm-hmm. build back up their muscles. And then people start taking steroids for physical enhancement for that. Do you envision a time where people are saying, hey, I want a prosthetic because I really don't want my arm. I want a different <laughs> arm type of thing. You know what? It sounds weird. Uh, but No, like, you know. I, no it's, it's, I laugh because I've, I've literally heard that before. Um, I've heard of somebody writing in and, and saying, you know, I'm, I'm just really not happy with how my arm is working. Would you consider amputating it? And, you know, and, and I, I think that's just a symptom of our, of our imaginary. I mean, what if you were to tell that person that in order to amputate that limb, they would have to possibly live with lifelong phantom limb pain. I mean, you know, I think people are, um, you know, jumping to these imaginaries uh, without thinking about the the reality of what, what it mm-hmm. takes to do these things. Again, we're getting back to this scaling down of of imagination, which I hope is, I hope there's some element of hope in that and not just, you know, cynicism. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, what you're gesturing to is this field or this concept of enhancement, right? And this sort of dreaming that we can enhance and transcend our, our earthly limitations through technology. And, and I like to think of that as a different thing than what's going on here and in the work um, that I do. Um, but sure, I mean, this is a era where I think we, we're so immersed in technological change all the time. Everything is, you know, changing at a rate that we've never 
encountered before and I think you know the human brain what it what it does to make sense of all of that is to create narratives of, of trying to make sense of what's possible um, it's just funny to me I just think yeah. so you've had somebody ask so that's clearly yeah I think you might see more of that in the future honestly yeah. I think just people especially as your press your prosthetic technology gets better and if it gets to the point where it's like, you know, again, helping the people it's helping, I think that's really good. But what if it's at a point where it's like really, like it's almost better than a regular arm? I'm not saying that will happen, but if it was, you might get more people asking about that. People are weird. They do weird stuff. They ask for weird things. They dream of crazy things. But I, but I saw that's what I was saying. Like, I think it's refreshing that, and I think people listening, it's good for them to hear, listen, slow down. Like this is not what, what other you're seeing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or not even just slowing down, but maybe what other kinds of questions could we be asking? Um than the ones that are yeah. And I think people don't think about it like what are the other questions? They're thinking about the 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 go to Mars question. You know, what I'm mean, like how far can we go? How you know you get these sensationalized people saying, yeah, we're going to be there by this date and we're going to have this by this date. And I think humans put limits on, they put deadlines on technology. Oh yeah, yeah by this time we're going to have this. And I think it's good to know that maybe that's not the right approach to be saying, hey, we're mm -hmm. going to have these type of prosthetic limbs by this date. Like just let the research happen, let the actual functional work happen, getting people that need that work done uh, focusing on them versus this kind of pie in the sky. I'm going to be, uh, you know, jumping off a building because of this prosthetic type of thing, yeah. you know, yeah. but that's what people think. They dream yeah. of things like this. Yeah. Definitely. No. And, and that's, that's also, I don't want to make it sound like that's also not a part of any of this either. Right. Like mm -hmm. we have to have dreams and those imaginations to keep striving and to keep inventing. Um, I just like as, as an anthropologist and as a social scientist to look at what those dreams tell us about what we imagine things can do for us or what we imagine we can do and how those drive us. Um, and your, your questions also make me think that I should mention too, in, um, in May I'll be going to Zurich, Switzerland with this group and two of the patients who will be participating in what's called the Cybathlon. So it's like an Olympics for people who use assistive devices. Uh, they call them pilots, which I think is a really interesting term, <laughs> right? Like they're the pilot of, of the devices that they use. And they go through a series of tasks and it's a competition. It happens every four years. And so um, if any listeners want to follow along that, it's called the Cybathlon and it'll be happening on May 2nd and 3rd in Zurich. And that's, that's like, amazing. You know, some of the you know, there's a lot of, of money and support in, in these sorts of, you know, it's a spectacle, it's a, it's a performance, it's, you know, so, so I, I don't want the audience to think that this doesn't have a place in science either, you know, or a place in the research communities either, because, you know, there's that element of competition and that element of performance that does drive these technologies, of course. Um, so it's just maybe in a in a more scaled way. So how did you get into this? I mean, I'm fascinated. Like, is there something that drove you to get into this field when you were mm -hmm. growing up? <laughs> yeah, let's see. Well, I've always been fascinated by the human body. Um, I, as a young child, I um, had a young, I had a loved one who had a medical emergency and it made me think about the body and its limits and its fragility in different ways and so I always thought that I would grow up to be a doctor um, and I and I studied pre-medicine throughout my time at Duke until my junior year and I studied neuroscience and I thought I would go into into medicine from that route um, but I found medical anthropology in the middle of my um, college years and sort of realized that they're asking the kind of questions that I want to be asking. They're engaging with the body and with science and the kind of creative and, and social and humanistic way that I wanted to do. Um, and so from there, I knew that I wanted to work, my, my early work as a medical anthropologist was um, more along the lines of a, looking at indigenous medicine systems in, in West Africa. 
but I realized that I really wanted to more explicitly bridge my neuroscience training with my anthropological training. And so that sort of just led me um, down the spiral into thinking that I was really fascinated with brain machine interfaces and human machine interfaces. And that led me to more research and more conversations that led me to here. But I would say that a fascination with the body quite simply is (laughs) what's always driven me. That's amazing. I mean, I'm I'm always fascinated by people that I get into different fields. And this is a field I just I don't have much knowledge in. So I, I like to gain knowledge by talking to the people who are in the different fields. And I think it's all it's definitely given me a very different perspective of it. You know, so I, I think like a lot of people, I come in with a very hey man, I love these movies and I'm learning about all this stuff. And you know, my friends and I have these crazy conversations about technology and 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 humans and so it's good to be grounded like okay here's what's what's happening in this segment of it you know and i think i think you're i think the dreaming is important though i think it's because it does flourish the ideas on some level even if it's not this outlandish stuff but it is there's a dreaming is what makes us human to explore and to you know climb mountains and to go under to the sea and figure out what's down there you know and It's very innate in us, I feel like that. You know, we explore that in our humanity in very different ways, I think. Certainly, but you just said it there. I mean, I think what's so interesting about dreaming is not only what we dream, but what our dreams tell us about us, too. What they tell yes. us desires, our needs, our, um, our creativity, our, you know, suppression of that creativity. So, yeah. It's fascinating. Like me, like I... You know, my ambition and dreams is to understand human beings better. That's mm-hmm. like always been my thing. Why do we act the way we act? Why are some people more are kinder and some people may be more violent is nature, nurture, you know, all these things. And I explore that through my podcast, talking to all these different people and how they come to be what they are. And how do they want to become someone else or how do they grow? Mm-hmm. They're like you're, you know, you seem very young. Like, and you're in this field, like, who will you be 20 years from now in this field? What type of human being will you be? How will your work influence the type of being that you are? I'm so fascinated by that. And I love growing with people and seeing how they become, you know, different versions of themselves over the course of their lifetime. Yeah. You should do follow-ups with your guests. I'm just thinking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think the plan is to do that. You know, I've had a couple people on a few times. It's interesting to see where they're at. Even in a span of several months of a person's life, a tremendous amount changes. Exactly. And and who they are, you know, and how they how they go about in the world. So like this is stuff I want to keep up with because I want to know the accurate information. I don't want some documentary telling me about prosthetics. I want to hear it from people doing the research (laughs) for it and giving me the accurate things. So I think it's incredible what you're doing. I really do. Thank you. Thank you, Darian. Yeah, yeah, no, and it makes me, you know, it reminds me too of the importance of communication, the importance, you know, as an academic, I mean, I'm writing my dissertation right now, and, you know, that's going to be read by my advisors and some of my interlocutors, but maybe, you know, I'm hopeful that it will become a manuscript of a book, but then you need to think about, like, the types of audiences that you're writing to, and I really think that we as academics have an imperative to make our work more accessible and um, I really hope to do that because, again, it, it does this important work that's besides just communicating what's going on. It does important work in, um, you know, grounding people in, in what's happening. So how has this work changed or how has this work maybe evolved how you are as a human being? Mm-hmm. How has it affected you? Mm, that's a great question. Oh, it's affected me immensely. I mean, it's brought me in a, in a very basal way. It's affected the trajectory of my life because it's brought me to Sweden and I'm, I'm staying in Sweden, you know, for, for the good foreseeable future. And, oh, wow. on, a, and on a personal level, I met my partner here and mm-hmm. sort of created a life here and, um, and sort of it's expanded my world in that way. But on that the work itself has in immensely impacted the way that I think about people's resilience and people's capacities to 
I mean, the people who I work with, the patients, their stories are just so humbling and their their humor and their resilience and the way that they move through the world. I mean, the human body and spirit is capable of so much. And, um, and actually, it's funny because the more and more I study the technology, the more faith I get in the human. <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm just super inspired by the people who I work with. I'm super inspired by the um, engineers and the scientists, too, and the, the things that are driving them. I think their hearts are in the work. Um, their hearts are with, you know, the people who they're working with, not just the the perhaps the theme of what they're creating, which is also you know, very impressive. But, um, and then it's also just really committed me to my field. Um, as an anthropologist, we, we do ethnography, which is kind of a long sustained time with people uh, living in their lives. You know, I've traveled throughout Sweden and visited patients and I've lived in their homes. And, you know, and then you, the sort of stories that you get out of that sustained being with people, I think those are the kind of stories we need. Wow. Wow. I think that's, that's just tremendous. I think that's a, honestly a good way to end it. You have more faith in humanity <laughs> after the, studying the technology. That is, there's something really beautiful about that <laughs> statement. It gives me a lot of hope because I think we're in a time where it can be, it's weird, the time we're living in, in a sense that we're so technologically um, connected that sometimes we forget about our humanity. And mm -hmm. it's this whole thing's been very refreshing to me, by the way, Alexandria, like your whole, your whole being and existence is very different than what I'm used to encountering. So yeah. I think it's very good. And uh, I'm really appreciative of you taking time out of your day to uh, mm. explain these things to me. I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Oh, thank you, Gary. And no, I'm really grateful for it, too. These are the kind of conversations I want to be having. And I'm really grateful for the work that you do to make them possible. Thank you so much. Well, listen, you have a good evening, rest of the evening. <laughs> and I'm starting my day. So. You have a good day. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll be, in, we'll be in touch, okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks so much, Jane. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye.